everyone, welcome to episode 38 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray, and this week we'll do our usual roundup of vulnerabilities and fixes from the past week, including a look at some updates for the Linux kernel, uh, Firefox, ImageMagick, OpenStack, and some others. And we're going to have a special guest in this week, which is John Johansson. He is the uh, lead maintainer and developer of the uh, AppArmor project. And he will be in to talk all things AppArmor and some of the upcoming features and that kind of stuff. All right, so let's get into it. So this week, there were 55 unique CVEs addressed across the supported Ubuntu releases. The first one uh, to look at is in the Linux kernel itself. So this is one CVE uh, addressed for Bionic, Cosmic and Disco. This was uh, an issue on uh, PowerPC, in particular 64-bit PowerPC systems. That's the PPC 64EL architecture in Ubuntu. And it was related to memory management and introduced in the 4.17 kernel. So as a result, uh, this only affects uh, the newer releases, which is Cosmic and Disco, or Bionic if you're using the hardware enablement kernel there as well. And so the main idea of this was that different processors might be able to read to or write to each other's virtual memory. Now, it's not as bad as that sounds. Uh, as I say, it only affects uh, 64-bit PowerPC architecture and on systems that we're using the hash page table memory management unit. And so uh, in the show notes, I've got a list of some of those. Uh, also, by default, uh, Power9 uh, on bare metal uses the Radix memory management unit. So this was not affected unless you've explicitly disabled this via kernel command line option. However, KVM guests that were using this would also be affected and logical partitions, LPARs uh, under Power9, under PowerVM on Power9 uh, would be affected because they do always use the hash page table memory management unit. Uh, so yeah, there's some sort of system specific parts that you need there to be affected. The other thing too is that uh, your process has to allocate memory above 512 terabytes, and this is only possible via MMAP. So if you did have a process that was uh, MMAPing above 512 terabytes to allocate memory, uh, if then a child process, so if that process put a fork, uh, the child then would receive the same context ID for the memory mapping and it would then just be able to read or write to that memory mapping uh, above 512 terabytes from the parent process. Then if that pro uh, child were to exit, a third process could be reallocated the same context ID so then it could possibly read and write to that memory as well. And so, yeah, this only affects a subset of PowerPC systems in the first place. And you need to also kind of have this uh, application logic that would allocate memory above 512 terabytes using MMAP. So, uh, yeah, while it kind of looks bad, the processors can read and write to each other's memory. It's a low probability that you are actually at risk of this. But this has been fixed now. Okay, uh, moving on. We've got an update for Firefox. So one CVE addressed for Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. This updates Firefox to the latest upstream release, which is 67.0.4. Now, I seem to be mentioning Firefox every single week. It's becoming uh, yeah, the new favorite thing. Anyway, in this case, uh, it's kind of a follow-up to something we mentioned last week, which was uh, this uh, vulnerability that was noticeably being exploited to target different uh, cryptocurrency platforms. Uh, in this case, it was possible that a sandbox child process could escape the sandbox by using uh, IPC, to send a prompt open message to the parent, uh, which was not sandboxed, and the parent would then process that on behalf of the child. And so, as I say, because the parent isn't sandboxed, it would process it, and you're actually sending here web content. And so, if that web content contained, uh, you know, something that could 
be exploited, so it's like some kind of uh, remote code execution vulnerability in the parent, you would be able to get unsandboxed remote code execution. And this is exactly what, as I say, was being happened. So last week I uh, talked about a vulnerability in the JavaScript engine, and this is exactly what they had seen being exploited uh, at being directed at Coinbase. So yeah, that's been fixed by updating the latest Firefox version. We've got an update for libmysofa. So one CVE here fixed for Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. Uh, MySofa is a library to read uh, the SOFA, the spatially oriented format for acoustics files. And while you're not maybe not directly using this, it is used by a lot of different applications that handle audio, things like GStreamer, FFmpeg, uh, SM Player, even Blender, and a heap of others. So yeah, even though you may not directly be using these files, you could be affected. Uh, the issue here in this case was an integer overflow leading to a buffer overflow. So the usual kind of things we see in um, you know, memory management in C applications. Uh, this would likely lead to a crash and denial of service, but possible code execution. So that's been fixed for libmysofa. Uh, next up, we have an update for image magic. So we haven't seen one of these for a while, but we've got 30 CVEs here fixed for Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. And as you're probably aware, image magic is used by a lot of different automated web systems in particular for image processing. Uh, in this case, it was a lot of different memory management issues that we fixed. Uh, most of these were able to at least cause a crash, so a denial of service, uh, but a bunch could also be possibly used to get remote code execution. Uh, as part of this update, we've also updated the default image magic policy to disable support for PostScript and PDF files because uh, these are handled by GhostScript, which if you listen to this podcast, you will know I mention kind of every uh, few weeks or months. <laughs> has a lot of different issues with it. And so, yeah, we've updated the policy for Cosmic and Disco so that it doesn't automatically essentially hand these off to GhostScript uh, because, as I say, it's been a source of uh, different vulnerabilities for quite a while. Now, uh, this is already the case for Bionic, the 1804 long-term support release. Uh, I mentioned that back in episode 7. So yeah, now all of those have the policy to not hand off PDFs and PostScript to GoScript. Okay, next we've got an update for Ceph. So four different CVEs here addressed for Xenial, Cosmic, and Disco. Uh, two of these were for the version of Ceph in Xenial. Uh, the first of these was that uh, the DM disk encryption keys were able to be read by users with read-only permissions. Uh, so yeah, not, not too good, but uh, that's been fixed to make sure that uh, users require an explicit permission to be able to read keys. And there was also a denial of service issue able to be triggered by uh, authenticated RGW users. So they've both been fixed for Ceph. Uh, we've also got two uh, CVEs for Cosmic and Disco. Uh, the first of these was that it wouldn't properly sanitize encryption keys when outputting debug logging information. And so uh, your encryption keys could be output in plain text to the debug logs. So this was fixed just to simply make sure they were sanitized before being output. And finally, there was a denial of service by unauthenticated remote users uh, via the Civet web front end. And so in this case, they could create connections uh, to the Radoff's gateway to exhaust its file descriptors uh, by causing it essentially to run out by only creating partial connections. And in this case, what was happening is it wasn't closing the file descriptor on the error path, so therefore uh, leaving a lot of open file descriptors and exhausting your file descriptors uh, for the process. So they've both been fixed as well. Moving on, we've got an update for OpenStack Neutron. So one CVE here fixed for Xenial and Cosmic. Uh, this is the networking abstraction layer of OpenStack. And within it, you're able to define security groups that have rules and these then get executed by a particular driver 
against some underlying technology. So uh, in the case of uh, Linux, this is often used via IP tables. So there's an IP tables driver that knows how to interpret the rules and essentially use IP tables to enforce that policy. And the rules can specify different protocols and source and destination ports, that kind of stuff. Now, the problem in this case was that the IP tables driver would execute the rules. But if it encountered an error such that you had specified a protocol along with a like a source port, but the protocol doesn't actually support ports like uh, the, the virtual routing protocol VRRP, then it would error out and would not apply further rules from that security group. So you could essentially block other rules in the group from being applied by adding one that essentially didn't make sense. So the fix here was pretty simple to make sure that uh, it didn't try to apply port arguments uh, to protocols that didn't actually support them. So that's been fixed for OpenStack Neutron. Moving on, uh, we released a security notice for the policy kit desktop privileges package. Uh, and so this affects Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. And so this wasn't an actual uh, security vulnerability in this case. It's a change to the behavior uh, in particular related to security. And in this case, we were looking at updating the policy kit policy for the USB creator uh, abstraction. And so previously, this would allow a user with administrative privileges, so if you were in the pseudo group, essentially, to overwrite disks. So in this case, we're using USB creator to create bootable USB images, uh, but without prompting for authentication. And so whilst that is generally safe, uh, it's slightly safer if you were to require them to also actually authenticate as that user as well. So that's now been updated to require authentication. So essentially just popping up, you know, a single dialogue to get you to put in your administrator password when you want to create a, a USB bootable image. Okay, we've got an update for bzip2. So two CVEs here fixed for precise extended security maintenance, trusty extended security maintenance, Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. Uh, the first of these was a use after free that could be triggered by a crafted uh, bzip2 file. So resulting in uh, the usual crash denial of service, but a possible code execution. And the second one was an out-of-bounds write uh, from a bzip2 file which contained too many selectors. So again, uh, because it's an out-of-bounds write, you could have possible code execution here depending on how you can overwrite you know, the heap and that kind of thing. Uh, it turns out this change actually now breaks decompression of some bzip2 files created by the lbzip2 utility uh, because it would often use an invalid number of selectors. Uh, upstream are still pondering how to kind of approach this because really lbzip2 is not doing the right thing and uh, you know it's actually a kind of un undefined behavior that's relying on to be able to decrypt these in uh, bzip2 uh, so yeah uh, i've got a link there in the show notes if you want to go and read more about that just a few more updates to cover we've got one for expat so one cve here fixed for precise extended security maintenance trusty extended security maintenance xenial bionic cosmic and disco uh, so this one was just a simple uh, denial of service from CPU if your XML names contained a large number of colons. So if you're familiar with XML, colons are often used to delimit uh, like a namespace from the actual element itself. And so if you put in a large number of these, it would basically just churn and churn processing all of those. So that's been fixed. We've got an update for Poplar, the uh, PDF rendering engine. 13 CVEs here fixed for Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. Uh, you probably heard me mention Poplar a number of times on this podcast. And so this is the usual mix of issues that we see here. Uh, we've got a memory leak. We've got uh, like a stack exhaustion issue. Uh, we've got three different heap-based buffer overreads, a null pointer dereference, uh, various floating point exception issues, and an assertion failure. So all of these could be uh, triggered potentially via crafted uh, PDF files. 
uh, to cause a crash in denial of service. We've also got one heap-based buffer underwrite, so essentially writing at a negative index into a heap uh, allocated buffer. In this case, because you're writing kind of before it on the heap, you could either be writing outside of the heap memory location in general, so you will cause a segmentation violation and therefore a crash and a denial of service. But if you are actually writing to other parts, valid parts of the heap and other data structures on the heap or the heap metadata, you could get possible code execution as a result. So they've all been fixed for Poplar. And lastly, we've got an update for the Linux kernel. So one CV here fixed for trusty extended security maintenance. Uh, that's the hardware enablement kernel there. Uh, Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. So back in episode 37 last week, I talked about this SAC panic issue, which was three different CVEs. And we addressed the first two of those. The third one was being addressed by simply adding a Cisco tool so that a system administrator could easily set the uh, minimum segment size. This is usually hard coded to 48, but uh, as seen in these vulnerabilities, that value can be used to cause uh, a CPU denial of service. And so this can now be increased easily to sort of reject essentially packets uh, that have uh, the value that will end up causing this denial of service. Uh, but potentially breaking your TCP implementation. So that's why we haven't kind of set changed that uh, default itself, but it can be adjusted as by the system administrator easily now without having to resort to things like IP tables rules. And that's it for our usual wrap up of vulnerabilities for the past week. Next up, uh, I had a chat with John Johansson. So John is the lead developer on AppArmor and the maintainer of the AppArmor project. I've been wanting to talk to John for quite a while, actually, and get him on this podcast. And so, yeah, I kind of started off just asking him about AppArmor in general. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. So um, AppArmor is a mandatory access control system that we use in Ubuntu. Uh, it's also used by other distros like SUSE. And its goal is to make uh, mandatory access control simplified so that uh, users can use it without running into issues. One of the biggest problems we had in the early days with mandatory access control is users would just ask, how do I turn this off? And that adds no security value at all. So the goal has been from the, almost the beginning to, to make the, the security project, the, the mandatory access control, easy for a user to selectively enable so that they can harden the bits that are important to them and the users that would, can use their regular admin skills without it getting in their way for the rest of the machine. Uh, so I remember when um, AppArmor was first introduced, uh, it's uh, heavily kind of path-based, right? And that was a point of contention, I guess, um, among other parts of the, the Linux kernel community in particular around security because SE Linux was the dominant thing, which is all label-based access control. But over time, AppArmor has, has kind of changed a bit. Are you able to talk about that, John? Sure. So um, AppArmor is path-based in that we want to be able to express things in, in the way that a user sees them and recognizes them. So the user deals with paths. The system has paths. And paths actually do have a meaning. So like Etsy Shadow, for example, um, where it becomes problematic and where people were upset with that is well, then you can you can use mounts and stuff to spoof locations or symlinks, um, and there it, there are certainly issues around that you have to be careful with. All our mediation post symlink resolution, so that symlinks aren't the attack vector that they were, say, with some early 
attempts at doing this uh, with other projects. Uh, we use mount rules to stop users from being able to set up aliases via mount. But it's still, it still it is an issue when you're trying to apply policy to a, at a system level unless you have a consistent system view. So uh, yeah, SE Linux takes a different approach. Uh, it sticks a, a label, uh, a file type on every inode file in the system. Uh, AppArmor took a different approach because paths do have meaning to the user and it makes it easier for the user to uh, manage their machine. And the most important point is, is AppArmor generally is not trying to confine the whole machine. We're trying to uh, basically do an in-place uh, controlled sharing instead of uh, sandboxing, right? So it is a sandbox in a sense, but it's controlled sharing between things and we don't have to have uh, a separate area for you to play in. We can control how you're sharing it instead. Um, you can do a total system confinement uh, and we've been working towards that. So underneath the hood, AppArmor doesn't just work with paths. It, it does a labeling somewhat similar to SE Linux. It's done at runtime instead of doing a, a labeling all at front with uh, their initial labeling that they do to set up the typing and information on the inodes. Uh, we're more dynamic that way and it does allow us to do some things that are more difficult. Um, so it makes it easier for the user to deal with where if you ever looked at SE Linux policy it's very involved and you have lots of type pairs or tuples, whatever you want to call them. Um, our policy, you just look at it and say, oh yes, I know it's going to be this, and it, it makes it a lot easier on the user. And that's, that's, that's the reason we've gone that way. Cool. We're talking about um, kind of file access control there, really, I guess. Uh, but there are other things that AppArmor can do. Are you able to talk, I guess, about some of the things that you can mediate with AppArmor? Sure. Um, it's not just file accesses, right? You can mediate signals between processes and who can ptrace somebody else. So, you know, ptrace is always a, a risky operation and ptrace has its own system restrictions already. But you can say, you know, I don't want Firefox being ptraced by somebody else because I have, you know, important stuff in my Firefox instance. So I can't, or maybe I don't want Firefox who's running potentially, you know, it's connected to the web and it could potentially get compromised by some JavaScript and, you know, an exploit that attacks Firefox and it's sandboxing. So it couldn't, it couldn't look out at other tasks on my system as even though it's the same user, right? Um, we can, we mediate dbus messages and we can restrict uh, networking though the networking is not where we would like it to be currently. It's not as fine-grained as we like. Um, but basically, yeah, we try to limit all the operations that the tasks can do. And uh, and the task doesn't get a say in whether, you know, it can bypass these things. This, this is enforced by the system. Yeah, and so the um, the security policy for, um, for applications is done on that process level. Um, you, you define a... a profile for a given process and then that defines what it can do what it can access um yeah what the essentially what the privileges are that it, it that you allow it on your system right and you know the, the security policy that you do is it's text-based right but uh we don't actually we actually have to compile that into a 
a state machine that we load into the kernel and it's very it's verified and then that it gives us guarantees about how these are going to be run and, and it lets us do checks so that we can verify on your policy that you've done that you know all the permissions are going to be right and that there's that you haven't specified anything that's wonky um, and that gives us runtime guarantees as well that you know we know that we're never going to allocate extra memory that we're never going to uh, get into situations like you know most you, pattern matching engines you would say oh you know they can you, you can there's a tax against say PCRE that cause it to overflow buffers or use up memory. Uh, you can't do that with the way we've done our state machine. Cool. Um, I guess then, so finally, what are some of the, uh, I guess, the features that um, are most used in AppArmor? And I guess then going forward, what are the, what are some of the most requested features that uh, are looking in the pipeline? Okay, so the most used features are, I think, just people do basic things like restricting file access. Uh, that's the most common thing that people do, and maybe a little bit of networking. Uh, what people ask for all the time is much finer-grained uh, networking, uh, so that they want to do things like, on the Mac, little snitch, where their application wants to reach out to the Internet, and they get an, a prompt saying, uh, do you want to allow this? Um, that is something a lot of people want or at least security wonks want. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea for the average user. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it is useful, and especially that's, that kind of thing is really useful when you're developing policy, uh, where you could have that interactive experience developing policy. It would be really nice, not just for networking, but for everything. Um, and so where we are, we are actually working on that we're working on the ability for our tools to be able to be interactive in that way so that we can aid uh, the security wonks who are developing policy and making things uh, more secure for systems. Uh, the other end of that is also we, we like policy to be really tight, but we want the user to be able to use it. And so things like file pickers and stuff are problematic right now where you have to give the application access to everything that it the file picker is going to potentially let the user see or load. Um, what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to have that file picker uh, run in a trusted scope and be able to delegate individual things to it. So that separates the file picking or uh, other potential things like images, whatever kind of pickers you want and separates that from the application's confinement so that we can have a tighter confinement and still have uh, better security. And this, this prompting plays into that where we can reroute things and have the file picker run in a separate context and be able to transparently provide that instead of popping up a request to the user, do you want to allow this, which is a terrible user experience. Um, and that's another place where this is going to be used in that would be the I think the most user asked for thing those you know the little snitch networking pop-up but we do have a few other things that are commonly asked for that are coming for example containers if you're talking LXD or uh, well docker and stuff uh, sometimes especially snappy app armor confinement um, 
is an, it can be an issue. And we've been working together with the LSM stacking project to make it so that we can make it so the AppArmor experience in a container is still there and so that your container can have policy and load it so you can have an Ubuntu container on, say, Fedora and still have your Ubuntu container load your AppArmor policy. Um, container side, that's the thing that's asked for the most is being able to do things like that. Awesome. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This kind of, um, I guess, uh, competing demands between like you say, there's kind of security wonks who are probably system administrators, you know, that uh, are thinking about their single machine versus those who are doing things more at scale where you've got a, yeah, it's more kind of containerized uh, deployment. And um, yeah, but it's it's awesome that I guess AppArmor has the, the ability to kind of scale across all those things and even to a, you know, a single desktop user trying to, as you were saying before, kind of, uh, you know, sandbox their Firefox or whatever it might be. Right. And well, not just for the single desktop user. That's another thing that's been asked for some that's coming is we are going to open up policy to actual users. So you don't necessarily have to be an admin on the system as long as the administrator is allowing you to have a policy namespace for the your user. You could uh, set up a policy on your own Firefox versus having a system fire policy. Uh, in fact, that your own policy could run in at the same time as the system policy. And so your policy is bounded by the system policy. And we actually support parts of that already with our policy stacking, but uh, we still need the pieces to be in place to make sure that we can securely allow users to load policy. And so we've been carefully going through and uh, fuzzing in our policy loading and double checking everything to make sure that it's ready to be opened up to users. Awesome. I think that sounds like a great place to leave it. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks, Alex. And thanks very much for that, John. I think I'll have to get you again, get you on again in uh, yeah, another month or two's time and we can talk some more AppHammer stuff. That was really good. Okay, so we're still hiring. We've got two open positions at the moment. The first one is for a robotic security engineer and the second one is for an Ubuntu security engineer. So for the robotic security engineer, we're looking uh, for someone in particular with some experience and interest in ROS, the robotics operating system, and with a strong uh, security background, uh, someone that can get involved with upstream and help influence the uh, security development of ROS. And for the second one, we're looking for more of a security generalist. So if you have a keen interest in Ubuntu and security, and you would like to help improve the security of your favorite operating system, I urge you to check out the second one and apply for that as well. All right, that takes us to the end of this week's show. As usual, if you'd like to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at security at ubuntu.com or you can find us hanging out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network or if Twitter's more your thing, you can get us at ubuntu underscore sec. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening again for another week. Uh, I'll be back with another episode next week. So yeah, as usual, keep calm, enable automated upgrades, and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye.